Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As Vicar mentioned in the start of the sermon, we are celebrating Thanksgiving, or start of the service, we're celebrating Thanksgiving today at chapel, and as we do so, we're looking at thanksgiving. See, we know that pausing one day out of 365, while it's a great thing to do, it isn't the only time we want to be thankful, right? We want Thanksgiving to spill over into our lives. And so today, on the basis of the miracle that we read earlier in Luke chapter 17, we'll talk about how our thankful hearts become thankful lives. Maybe you saw this video, it came out, I think it was posted about a week or a week and a half ago, about uh, a sloth who was trying to cross the road. There's no joke here. Why did the sloth cross the road? Nothing like that. But I'd like you to see this video because of the reason why it made its rounds on social media, why the video itself went viral. Take a look at it. It's about a 30-second video. So I heard the reaction. That's exactly why the video went viral, right? It does look like, doesn't it? Whether you think it's actually what happened or not, like the sloth is saying thank you to the man that helped him across the road. And I thought to myself, if a sloth can express thanks in that way, how much more us, God's people, human beings who know the blessings of God, who want to reach out with that thanksgiving, not just for our Lord, but serving others as well. So today, again, as we look at this miracle from Luke, Luke's gospel, we'll, we'll focus on how to get thankful hearts and then let those thankful hearts become thankful lives. First of all, we'll see it's by remembering our rescue and then by returning to our Redeemer. We'll walk through the miracle again as we go through the sermon today and take a look at how Luke sets up the miracle in the first couple of verses. He writes this, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. Luke begins by telling us a little bit about Jesus' travels. And he tells us that he's going from Galilee to Jerusalem, from the north in the land of Israel to the southern part of Israel. What's unique about Jesus' travels at this point in Luke's gospel is that it is his last trip. It's the final time he's going to make this journey because this time, when he gets to Jerusalem, it's going to end with his death and resurrection. I find it amazing as I read through Luke's gospel, the compassion and the love that Jesus shows for other people, even though he knows where he's going and what's going to happen when he gets there. And so here we see him in this text meeting these 10 men who had leprosy. Somewhere in a village between Samaria and Galilee, Jesus runs into these men who need the healing that they think only Jesus can bring. Can I ask you, what, what do you remember about leprosy? As you've read through the Bible and thought about that and you've heard that term come up, do you remember what, what leprosy was like? Do you remember, first of all, that in Jesus' day it was considered incurable? There were no antibiotics, nothing that could help the skin disease that people would develop and it often demonstrated itself in sores or lumps that would form really from the head, of, from the head down to the toes. What made it worse is that it was contagious. And because it was contagious, those who had it were forced to live away from their families, away from society, sometimes living in caves or, or out in the open because they couldn't risk giving what they had to other people. Can you imagine the lonely existence that was? 
And even more than just being a lonely existence to be separated from your family, to know that with no cure, this was going to end up in your death? That's why leprosy is a good picture of sin. Because sin too leaves us hopeless and helpless. It's sin that without Jesus is not curable. It's sin that separates us from God. And yes, it's sin that pronounces on us a death sentence. The wages of sin is death. It was God who, in his Old Testament law, particularly guarding the people in their worship life, who gave instructions about these skin, skin diseases in Leviticus chapter 13. Listen to these couple verses. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Maybe as you read those words, you thought, boy, a year and a half ago, those words might not have meant that much to me. But can't we relate a little bit? I'm guessing that some of you, during the course of the last year and a half, may have been subject to quarantining. Maybe you can even remember what that was like. Ten days, was it? Ten days being by yourself, away from other people, separated from family and friends, waiting to be able to resume your life again? Yeah, that was ten days or a little bit longer. Can you imagine doing that for a lifetime? For years, waiting for your disease to catch up with you and finally for you to die? That's what leprosy was like. That's what leprosy caused. And that's why leprosy is such a good picture of sin. Because apart from Jesus, apart from some cure, somebody acting in our behalf, there would be no salvation. So take a look at what happens in the text. The men called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. It's interesting to note that Luke doesn't tell us how these men knew Jesus. But maybe it's, it's fair to say that this demonstrates how popular Jesus had become. That people knew about the teacher from Galilee, from Nazareth, the teacher who was also a healer. And, and even in these remote areas where the lepers lived, they knew about Jesus. And they knew that only he could provide the hope and the help for which they were looking. They stood at a distance and called out to him, Lord, have pity on us, have mercy on us. Come to us in our time of need. It's also interesting to note that Jesus doesn't heal them right away. It was not an immediate healing that Jesus gives. He simply says to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. That would be a step they would have to take anyway because it was the priests who could finally declare them clean again and able to rejoin society. But it wasn't until they went on their way that they were cured. Their hope was not misplaced. They were healed completely had their leprosy taken away from them. I don't know if we can even begin to understand what a life-changing miracle that was for those men. 
They were now able to go back to their homes, to go back to their families, maybe go back to their jobs to settle back into society. The death sentence that had, pronounced, had been pronounced was lifted. What joy! Thanksgiving must have filled their hearts. And that cure is also a great picture of our salvation, isn't it? It's exactly what Jesus has done. He's freed us from our death sentence. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what the cure for sin, our Savior Jesus, has done. It has taken away what stands between us and God, what separates us from Him, and gives us the gift of life forever with Him. I kind of like rescue stories. You know what I'm talking about? The stories that we hear on the news about brave and daring people who go into danger to make sure that somebody else is taken care of. And I think about all of the different stories that I've heard throughout my life and for, for whatever reason, there's one that always sticks in my head. And I, I'm going to apologize to the students right now because I went back to 1987. And that might as well be like the Stone Age, right? 1987. But maybe some of you out there might remember just by the picture on the screen what dramatic rescue I'm talking about from 1987. Does anybody remember her name? Jessica, baby Jessica. See, some people are as old as I am. That's very nice. Baby Jessica wandered into her aunt's backyard and fell into an abandoned well pipe. Here's the amazing part. That abandoned well pipe was about eight inches in diameter. She fell 22 feet. And so the concern was, how do we get baby Jessica out of the well without causing any further damage? It took 58 hours. 58 hours of planning and of carrying out plans to rescue the baby Jessica. And as you can imagine, even in 1987, every hour, maybe every minute of the rescue was covered on the news. You could follow along and know exactly what they were doing. You might remember that they actually dug a second shaft a little ways away from the first one and then tunneled over to be able to rescue her without having anything collapse. The joy when she was pulled out of that drain pipe, that that well, the joy for her, the joy for her family, the joy for the rescue workers, yes, they must have all been filled with thanksgiving. And I think about that dramatic rescue because isn't it fair for me to say that the rescue from sin is even more dramatic? That the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, the sinless Son of God came to this earth to take your sins and mine to the cross? To be crucified so that we could be free of those sins? And that's exactly what he did. And his resurrection is your guarantee that those sins are gone forever. Take a look at how the men in the story reacted to Jesus' healing. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. One of the ten turned back. Remember, they're on their way to the priests and, and, and they're healed. And, and one of them says, it's more important to go back 
fall at Jesus' feet and praise God with a loud voice, thank Jesus for what he's done. And that's exactly what this man did. Jesus is surprised. Where are the other nine? How come only one has come back to thank me? And then he praises the man for his faith. Your faith has made you well. In a sense, we could say that there was a double healing. He was twice healed because not only was he cured of his leprosy, but Jesus also recognized the faith that he had been given to believe in Jesus as his Savior. It's easy, isn't it, to be critical of the other nine people? To want to see ourselves in the one who returned? But if we think of our lives, we can probably understand a little better what those nine men were thinking. They're already on their way to the priests. There's complete healing. The only step left is to go to the priests and be declared clean and then get to go home. Be back with your family. Resume life. Enjoy the time that God has given. We can understand that that was their preoccupation, that that was their goal. Maybe we could call it skewed a little bit, their priorities. But doesn't that happen to us too? Sure, we recognize where every blessing come from, comes from. We know it's all a gift from God. But maybe in the way that we think about our relationship with God, we wonder if we aren't a little entitled to some of those blessings. Like, God, I, I, I worship you with my life. I, I go to church on Sunday. I, I try to take care of my neighbors and shouldn't there be something for me? And maybe in our expectations that, that somehow God is going to provide us good things and maybe even owes us some of those good things, maybe our thanksgiving becomes a little shallow as we focus on life in this world and forget about all of the blessings that God has given it's interesting to note in this story that, that the man, the one of the ten that comes back is identified for us by Luke as a Samaritan and by Jesus as a foreigner, someone who lived outside of the promises that were given to Israel. And you might remember that it was Samaritans who were looked down on by the Jewish people as somehow being at least spiritually inferior. And yet here this Samaritan man is the one who puts the other nine to shame. This week we celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a great time to get together with family and friends and think about all the blessings that God has given us. It's also a good time to reflect on how truly thankful we always are, isn't it? Because maybe we can learn a little something from the man who returned to Jesus too. See, we know. We know deep down that there's nothing that God owes us we're owed nothing by God except punishment for our sins. But that's not how God treats us. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, the psalmist says. Instead, he rescues us from those sins. That's the joy that we have, that even in the midst of shallow thankfulness, even in the midst of gratitude that doesn't quite measure up, God's mercy and love covers a multitude of sins, every sin. And it covers it in our Redeemer, See, that's the rescue that Jesus has provided, the rescue from sin. And that's why we want to return to our Redeemer because he's given us not just forgiveness of sins, but the assurance that we have life in eternity, a life with him forever. Jesus has given us every reason to praise him, not just one day of the year, but every day, every minute of every day. The Apostle Paul wrote it this way in his letter to the Ephesians, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in love, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Let's let those words soak in. We have redemption. Claimed as God's own through the blood of Jesus, grace lavished on us. That's our reason for praising God because we know what Jesus has already done. We know that it can't be taken away from us. Some takeaways today from the sermon. Number one, living a thankful life begins with recalling our rescue from sin. When we remember what Christ has done, when we remember what he calls us, his own children and heirs of eternal life, that's where thanksgiving begins. Number two, living a thankful life happens when we recognize our blessings. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to think about the things we wish we had or that we don't have. But when we focus on what we do have, all of the blessings we have, it fills us with gratitude and joy. Finally, number three, living a thankful life leads us to praise our Redeemer now and forever. He is worthy of praise. Can I ask you to consider something this week? As you think about your own Thanksgiving, your celebration with family, pray that you get a chance to do that. As you think about Thanksgiving this week, will you think about one person in your life? One person who could use a little bit of encouragement, use some love from you that reflects the love of Jesus and find a way to to go out of your way to make sure that you connect with that person this week. That's one of the ways that we live our thanks, right? By, By returning God's blessings to us in the way that we act with others. Maybe you remember that leprosy is a picture that sort of runs through the whole Bible. And I recall, and maybe you do too, the story from the Old Testament about a man named Naaman. He was a commander in the army of Aram, so he was a Gentile, a foreigner to Israel. And he was told that if he went to Elisha the prophet, Elisha would heal him of his leprosy. You might even remember that Elisha prescribed a unique treatment. Just go wash yourself in the Jordan River. You might even remember that Naaman said, wait a minute, there's a lot cleaner rivers back in Aram. I don't have to do this in the dirty Jordan River. But when he was ultimately convinced to go, when he finished washing in the Jordan River, the Bible tells us that his skin became like that of a young child. It was complete healing. That's what Naaman did next, that maybe he kind of gets glossed over in the story. I always find it fascinating. He asks Elisha if he can take back with him as much dirt from Israel as two mules can carry. Really? Yes, he takes the dirt back with him to Aram because he wants to worship God on Israelite soil. Whether he needed to do that or not isn't really the point, is it? Do you see when he recognized where the cure came from, then he wanted to return praise to his Redeemer? He wanted to worship God for all of the good things that God had given him. The Apostle Paul says the same thing to us in Romans chapter 12. In view of God's mercy, he says, brothers and sisters, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. It's only through Christ and the blessings that he gives that we can live thankful lives. When that thanksgiving spills into our hearts, It will overflow into our lives. Amen. Peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus, amen.